Hi Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. And happy Pride! Happy Pride! God, it's June, baby! And by June, we're halfway through June. We're halfway through. We're late. We're late on the Pride episode. Thanks <laughs> for all of the, the DMs letting us know. We appreciate yeah, that. But we definitely have been celebrating on our personal pages, on our pod page, on our Patreon, special close friends group. All the things. Lots of celebrating. Happy Pride. In fact, we both are sporting... Our gay-ass sunflower earrings. Gay-ass sunflower earrings. They're so cute. I know. Way to go, you. Thank you so much. They're really comfortable. Thank you. They're super light, which I love. They're a good size, too. It's like a statement piece. Agreed. Agreed. I have sold several at my office, so now I just show up at team meetings and, like, six people are wearing gay sunflower earrings. I love it. So we're making a statement. I love that. In our home state. We're doing, um, like, a pride day at work. I think next week, the oh, week after so this episode comes out, I believe. So I will be sporting them next week. Perfect. Dolly is here joining us in the closet today. She is. This is her first time. Well, it's not her first time in the closet, but it's definitely the first time she's been in here since we recorded. And doesn't she have, like, the look of, like, she's she's going to be a pain. <laughs> She just looks like she wants to be great. Her personality has changed so much since we got to this house. She's so much more, like, outgoing. She just runs. She frolics. One room to another. She's just, like, totally stoked to be here. This is her kingdom. Yes. And she is going to make the most of it. Everything the light touches. Everything the light touches. I was just about to say that. Yeah. (laughs) We may have been recording a podcast together. That's right. For too long when we start finishing each other's sentences. She also has a haircut, which I don't think we've talked about. Uh, She's a lion cut. Um, so she has the boots with the fur. You can see her nipples. You see them? <laughs> it's growing in beautifully. Hang on, let me see the nipples. Right here. She's like, Don't She's gonna out. attack you your them? hand. Oh my goodness. I'm sorry I'm objectifying you, Dolly. But everyone needs to know. But how fitting that she's joining us in the closet during Pride Month. Amen. Dolly is a lesbian. You think or a so? queer person. Mm, she gives high femme to me. What do you think? Well, I know that she's had male partners in the past, but hey, that doesn't mean anything. Does not mean anything. Not a damn thing. It's hard to say. Blink twice if you're gay. She looked away and she stuck her <laughs> leg up, so I don't know. It's hard to say. Maybe she prefers the term queer. Maybe. Don't we all? To I some, think so. I mean, the younger generation, I know there's a lot of like negative stigma still associated with the word queer. Yeah. But have you seen the queer ultimatum no i haven't but i've seen every single tiktok about it so i feel like i know what's going on well don't look at that you can't be spoiled by it well my tiktok knows me too well have you seen it yes how is it it's amazing ray and i are obsessed with it i'm like baby this is what communication looks like it's like so (laughs) much different than all of like the straight like um you know reality tv shows everything now disclaimer i have not seen it but everything i've seen about it is like this is red flag central for every single lesbian in the show or queer person in this show yeah the relationships are just as unhealthy as on any other reality tv show right for sure um but they do communicate a lot better i could see that yeah i, could see I that. enjoy it we're having a blast 
Good. What's it on? Because what is it on? I feel like it's one of the streaming. Is it services. on Netflix? No, I think it's on Netflix. Am is I making that up? I don't know. I really. Honestly. I've been obsessed with Queen Charlotte, so we have not seen anything else. Oh yeah. And I finally started watching Manifest, which if you have not seen Manifest, it is a uh, like super good show. I haven't seen. I've seen it like advertised, but no, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I've been watching Made on HBO. <gasps> Which is now Max. I'm like, stop changing your name, HBO. Right. Made. Made. I think I read something no, about is the it on? No, it's on person. Netflix. I'm lying. It's based on a true story, right? I think it's based on a book or a blog. Okay. I it's think really I've... well written. You would fucking love it. Okay. I'll definitely have to watch that too, except I'll have to watch it here because I don't have Max or HBO. No, I th- I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix. I think I've been fibbing to you. Oh. And I'd like to formally apologize. <laughs> I think Apology it's on HBO or it's on Netflix. I can't keep track. It's it's a it's a blur. Um also, have you seen Shiny Happy People? Negative. Okay. That's one that we have to watch together. Okay. That's the nineteen kids and counting one. Is it about Bill Gothard? Is it that is it that one? It's not technically about him. It's like it's heavily focused on the nineteen kids mm-hmm. and counting, but it does bring in Bill Gothard. What um okay? Because I I texted I know that you. That's been on your list I know. for forever. I texted you and I was so mad because I was like, they're fucking dropping a documentary, and I have this like queued up to cover next cult. God damn it! So can I admit something to you? Yes. Very briefly, we won't go too deep into it. So you said, God damn it, they're doing Bill Gothard, and I was like, oh man, that sucks. Who the hell is Bill Gothard? <laughs> yeah. And I did. I was driving, so I didn't even bother like looking it up at that moment. Uh-huh. I was like, I'll do it later. And then fast forward to yesterday, and I was reading because, you know, I had a few spare minutes. So I was reading uh, one of the 19 Kids and Counting things about this new TV mm-hmm. show, and it mentioned Bill Gothard. And I went, oh. Ding, ding, ding. That's it. Oh, God. I, there's so many, th- like... I love it when other things come out, but like, you know, when you want to cover it first, when you feel like you invented Bill Gothard, do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like <laughs> you I knew about him before it was I cool. knew about him before I was born. Like, do you know right. what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so, but that's okay. We'll cover him too. It's still, it's still good information. It's still relevant. Do we also want to talk about what we're drinking today? Um, probably. We probably, probably should. And this is one of your recipes, so I'll let you... Thank you, you so much. So let's take a sip and okay. then we will discuss. So Shall we cheers? Cheers. Well, I can't reach you. Can I? Here, well, tink. I don't know that they heard that, but. Okay. Mm. So this mm. drink, there's a small distillery here in Greensboro that has a really good, like, floral, herbal. Herbal? What are you, British? Herbal. <laughs> Herbally. <laughs> Uh, gin. So it's fainting goat spirits has a really great gin. And I've been trying to figure out what to do with it as a mixed drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is actually not their gin, but the drink is inspired by their gin. So it's floral, it's herbaceous, which is my new favorite adjective. Mm, it's like a salad. Um, it's really easy to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, very it refreshing. It really is. Um, so this is generalized anxiety generalized anxiety generalized anxiety which we both have (laughs) (laughs) love it i know it's perfect i mean if you're gonna name a drink for psychology generalized anxiety gin it's gin gin generalized anxiety (laughs) (laughs) heavy on the gin light on the anxiety Light on the anxiety i would say yeah i'm not feeling anxious at all right now 
Me either, um, which is fantastic. I'm also drinking my lemon water. I had cucumber water the other day, like fresh made cucumber water. Yum. We talked about that last week, I think. God, it's so good. So good. I love water. You know what else I love? Psychology and history. Psychology and history. (laughs) How did I know? And this week, as well as next week, we're doing pride themed episodes. Thank the stars. Because guess what? We're proud. Thank RuPaul. Thank who who are the gay gods? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> Greek and Roman baby, all gay. All the gods old and new. Mm-hmm. It's not Game of Thrones moment. Okay. All right. So I'm going to start off, even though this is not a cult episode, I'm going to start with a cult classic in that my topic today is just a jump to the left. Mm. Amen. And then a step to the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the left in this case being sociology and the right still being psychology. So we're going to take a jump to the left into sociology and then like teeter back into psychology here and there. Beautiful. So in honor of Pride Month, my very favorite holiday, I wanted to explore the topic of gender diversity. Mm-hmm. Every subtopic of today could be its own episode. Um, and some of this is going to be super duper basic because I want us to start a like all on the same playing field. Yep. Um, so one of the revelations I had recently is there's a lot of support for folks who are coming to learning about race work, like mm-hmm. unpacking institutional racism, internalized racism, uh, white supremacy. Like there's so much out there to provide support as you're unlearning and relearning all of those systems. And understanding gender and LGBTQ plus issues is in many ways like closely aligned with that movement, right? Like they all kind of fall under this idea of white supremacy culture Mm -hmm. and um, powers and systems of oppression. However, I feel like there's less information out there and it's harder to come to this understanding in some ways because it's so closely tied to people's personal experiences and religious perspectives and like children's rights, Mm. parents' rights. Like there's so many layers to unpack and there are with race work as well. I think the parallel for me is that there's similar systems that we're all learning and unlearning, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to take a moment to like really dive in Mm -hmm. to gender. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So the definition of gender diversity, as defined by the gender spectrum, but found from Wesleyan University, gender diversity refers to the extent to which a person's gender identity, role, or expression differ from the cultural norms prescribed for people of a particular sex. Other terms for this include gender nonconforming, non-binary, gender creative, or gender variant which I think you and I are all like super familiar with. Yes. Um, I have a friend who identifies as gender inconvenient, which might be my personal favorite. So we're going to think back to our gender bred person. Um, We know that there's a difference between biological sex, gender identity, gender expression, and sexual attraction, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And each of those things are spectrums. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like we need to get deeper into those or do you feel like those are probably pretty well known by our audience i think our audience is pretty familiar um 
but yeah, identify like identifying of what you like, what your preferences are, does not necessarily align with your self identity. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Beautifully said. So we can also link the genderbred person to our. Um, are you saying genderbred? Yeah, because you, you've seen the like they use a gingerbread cookie, gingerbread man, gingerbread oh, person. Oh, genderbred. Genderbread. So, what are you, you saying? Genderbred. Genderbred. Let me show you the picture because so a genderbred person. This was designed by somebody. <laughs> Shout out to you. Shout out. Uh, by it's pronounced metrosexual. So it's like taking a gingerbread person and has a diagram on top of it of what's the difference between all of these different things. Between identity, expression, biological sex, and sexual attraction. And attraction. Got it. Yeah. So... Um, making a note to definitely share this because it makes say, so much more sense when you see it. <laughs> Give Sorry, that to I'm Jack just... Wowza right now before we forget because, yeah. We'll yeah, share it on the Instagram. For sure. But I just, I'm talking about it like you knew what we were talking about. I have no idea. That's totally fine. Now that I know, I am saving the photo. Okay, but basically, it's taking this little diagram and breaking down where these different components exist right Mm -hmm. so your gender identity is how you see yourself it's internal your gender expression is external your biological sex or what you were assigned at birth is based on like your sexual characteristics um and then sexual attraction is who you're attracted to Mm -hmm. who you want to bone who you want to bone and who you want to love right which don't necessarily align but i think you know There's some correlation, typically, I would assume. Okay, so the key thing here is that folks who are gender nonconforming express their gender in ways that are not consistent with socially prescribed gender roles or identities. The European Institute for Gender Equality defines gender norms as, quote, ideas about how men and women should be and act. Internalized in early life, gender norms can establish a life cycle of gender socialization and stereotyping. So what are some examples of, like, these gender roles? Can you think of any? Like, what are men typically defined as? Like, what are their typical attributes? Uh, well, I think about house chores. Yeah, for sure. I think about mowing the lawn. I think about taking out the trash. Taking out the trash. Who does the dishes? Mm-hmm. Who cooks? Yeah, cooking, uh, cleaning, uh, rearing the, the babes. The babes, the wee um, babes. You know, money. Yep. Income. Yep. So men are typically considered like defenders and breadwinners and leaders. Women are more passive, emotional, and followers. Men are active, worldly, and tough. Women are submissive, passive, and home-oriented. Right? Mm. Yes. That's a fact, all of it. Write that down. (laughs) So this influences the toys that kids play with. Like, boys aren't allowed to play with dolls, and girls don't need to play with tools. The ways that people dress, how people get promotions, establish rules in the household, and other responsibilities. Again, we're laying some groundwork for some like later information. So this comes up in queer identities really regularly. LGBTQ plus folks are more likely to defy traditional gender roles personally and within their relationships. However, this appears in cis relationships too. Like... 
can you think of any ways that you and your hubby break gender roles? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I really don't know. I don't mow the lawn. I don't really take the trash out. But... Uh, I don't know. You don't know? No. I think one of the things that, like, super surprised me, dating a person who historically has dated more men, is she never filled up her gas tank. Like, oh. her ex always did that. Mm-hmm. So, like, it was super weird for her transi- transitioning to a queer relationship where I'm not going to yeah. fill up her gas tank. True. It's interesting. I'm, uh, I usually fill up my own gas because I always get gas when I'm by myself. Well, okay, I can... Ray and I don't have... Um, we have separate bank accounts. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a difference. Yeah, than... we don't combine our finances. Oh, perfect. Mm-hmm. Really good example. Another example is thinking of husbands who are like, quote-unquote, hempecked. Like, have you heard that? that term? No. So... Do we love it or hate it? We hate it. Okay. So it's like husbands whose wives run things, like they're oh. hens as in, oh. you know, Bark, chicken. Bark, yeah, bitch. exactly. Uh-huh. Um, henpecked, meaning like their husbands They're whipped? Shit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's a super negative stereotype for couples, but it's for those who deviate from like these traditional gender roles. Mm-hmm. Who so, run the world? Squirrels. <laughs> right. <laughs> for sure. Okay. So we're going to talk about trans identities being a component of gender diversity. Trans individuals, in this instance, children and youth, um, will typically consistently, persistently, and insistently express a cross-gender identity. And this is from the Society of Psychology of Social Orientation and Gender Diversity from the American Psychological Association. So I did not type cross-gender. I mean, I did, but Mm -hmm. it came from them. Got it. And they identify and feel that their gender is different from their assigned sex at birth. This can happen as early as they gain awareness of gender, meaning like two to three years old. Yeah. What are boys? How are they different from girls? Kind of all of that. Typically, children know the sex they were assigned at birth, and children younger than three can quickly tell you that they want to be a different gender or express dissatisfaction with their sex. We're all cool so far. Yep. You knew all of that. I did. Excellent. We're going to talk about gender dysphoria. So that was our jump to the left because we mm-hmm. had to do like some of the groundwork for what is this? Yeah. Why are we talking about gender dysphoria? Right. So the step to the right is gender dysphoria, mm-hmm. which is in the DSM-5. Oh, yes. So gender dysphoria is a clinically significant distress or impairment related to gender incongruence, which may include the desire to change their primary or secondary sex characteristics. Primary sex characteristics are changes to sexual organs, such as the uterus, vagina, penis, or testes, and secondary sex characteristics are other visible changes. Mm -hmm. Not all transgender or gender-diverse people experience gender dysphoria. The diagnostic criteria is a little different between adults, adolescents, and children, but must be associated with this, like, quote-unquote, clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning in order to get the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And the diagnosis is important because a lot of the gender-affirming care that individuals may seek is contingent upon being diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Can we also take a moment to talk about gender-affirming surgery or procedures and how they're not just exclusive to the trans community. Absolutely. 
I mean, girl, you're getting your fillers in your lips. What do you think that is? For sure. What do you think a breast augmentation is if you're a cis woman? Body dysmorphia All really of that plays ties into. In. Yep. All of that ties in. It also makes me think of like how pissed people are about like the Target Pride collection because they feel like all of this is in their face. And it's like, what do you think is in the boys section right now? It's like, uh, uh, lock up your daughters yeah. is on a onesie. And yeah. I don't know which, which store, but I've seen it on a onesie recently. Like, people are hypersexualizing children. It's not the gays who are doing it. No. The gays are just saying, be yourself. They're saying, live, laugh, lesbian. Get over it. I need to get a live, laugh, lesbian crop top. You do. I really do. Um, Do you know if our, like, the targets around here have closed down their pride section? I know it's not all Did they close down the whole pride section? A lot of targets have. Like, completely removed stock from the shelves. Oh, that sucks. Oh, it super sucks. So we for need to go find out. For the safety of their employees or for? They say yes. I think it's more because a certain population were calling for a ban on Target. And mm. Target was afraid of losing yeah, money. it's all about money, right? It's all about money. Because Damn. if you care about the safety of your um, staff, like some of your staff are queer. Oh, my God. Being an ally, being, being an ally is literally about employee retention. It's not just about safety. It's about getting top talent and, you know, allowing that talent to stay with your company. Right. For a long time. Exactly. And as a queer person working in retail, would you feel safer behind a company that says these are our values and we're going to stand behind them? Mm-hmm. Or, ooh, Sorry let me just that. go ahead and remove that. Yeah. I mean, we knew Let's run that back. We knew queer people who worked for Chick-fil-A during all of that nonsense oh 10 years ago. Yes. Like, can you imagine? Yes. Like, sorry, we hate who you are, but thanks for working us for us for $12 an hour. My pleasure. Mm. Um No, you are absolutely right. And we get into actually that some of that is what drove me wanting to do this. So at the end, we're getting into the st- statistics around gender-affirming care and why it's so important, but also the bans on gender-affirming care. So like we know the bans that are going through in Florida, the issues in Texas. I think Tennessee is another state. Um, Tennessee has the drag ban. Tennessee also has the drag ban. Like, why are we banning individuals who there is no data around any drag queens like showing up at a book reading for children and hurting the children like that's not a thing no it's not i mean you've seen it we've all seen the meme it's like if i'm gonna allow my children to be in a group of drag queens or these straight white politicians like who the fuck are you gonna choose one of them is consistently predatory exactly and the other one is not exactly Okay, so back to gender, di- gender diverse and trans identities. Whether a child is transgender or gender diverse may not be readily apparent, right? Like you may not know a person is gender diverse until like way later in life, if at all. Um, we see individuals begin exploring their gender expression during any life stage. This means that the prevalence of children who present as gender diverse or identify as transgender is truly unknown. There is some existing data from clinical samples of children who were referred for gender dysphoria. 
These studies estimate that 5 to 12% of girls and 2 to 6% of boys exhibit, quote, cross-gender behavior. Do you want to go ahead and, like, <laughs> assume why there are more girls than boys showing up for gender dysphoria? Because I think it has something to do with toxic masculinity. Mm. Or, um, yeah, probably. Yeah. In these samples, girls are three to six times more likely to be referred for clinical treatment for gender dysphoria than boys, which may be due in part to greater social acceptability for participation in, quote, cross-gender behaviors than boys. Also, just think, it says so much about toxic masculinity in our society and the impact on children's health and development. Like, we are so afraid of feminine features that we would be more accepting of girls exhibiting masculine features than we would be of young boys to exhibit it, exhibit feminine ones. Have you heard the thing where it's like straight men are afraid of gay men because they're afraid that the gay men are going to make them feel like they make straight women feel? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that there is so much to unpack with the way that men are raised and socialized to fear the behaviors that they put out, right? And it is a fear which is counterintuitive to the, you know, like the mission, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're not supposed to feel fear, but that's exactly what it is. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think uncomfortability is? Mm -hmm. So as of June 2022, the Pew Research Center states that about 5% of young adults in the U.S. self-identify that their gender is different from their sex assigned at birth. And that number is on the rise. I think the reason is related to the deconstruction of gender roles and gender expectations in mass. However, this is not new. So my second jump to the left is we're going to go down a history hole. Yay! Okay, so a lot of this is a quote, or several quotes, from... The Star Observer, which is an Australian website. Australia. Um, so, quote, while we think of trans and gender diverse people as a recent phenomena, a large body of historical and scientific evidence actually shows that we have been here since the dawn of humanity. Scattered throughout human history are incredible examples of gender diverse identities, yet there is very little mainstream knowledge of our lost ancestors because history has written and constructed, or history has been written and constructed in ways that hide, erase, silence, obscure, and bury evidence of transgender lives. Mm -hmm. Say it again for the people in the back. <laughs> <clears throat> These are their stories. <laughs> bum bum. Okay, so I'm going to give you just a few examples because there's so many. So one of the, or some of the earliest examples of trans, gender nonconforming, gender diverse folks actually come in the form of divinity, which is ironic, but we'll get into that later. So the Mexica goddess of Mexica and Huastic, goddess of sexuality and carnal knowledge, was consistently depicted with both male and female physiology and character, which was clearly beyond the binary. And this was like 
way BC. I was going to say a long, long time ago. Long, long time ago's days. I thought I wrote the year down, <laughs> and so we're ad-libbing. <laughs> the textual evidence surrounding Mesopotamian transgender goddess Inanna, um, who is an aspect of the deity Ishtar, in a writing from 1750 BC, Damn. Um, describes her as, quote, changing man into woman and woman into man. She devotes her people, er, her devotees were people who were assigned male at birth who identified as and lived as women and were commonly accepted by society. And this was written on a, like, tablet slab and is in the British Museum. Oh, so this was on the Rosetta Stone. Correct. Correct. Because the British Museum has everything that's not British. <laughs> right. Well, there's no British history. There's n- except for... <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. That was mean. So, fast forward a little bit into indigenous cultures around the world, which consistently demonstrated strong understandings of people who did not align with their sex at birth and even recognized third gender identities. So, today we have the concept of uh, two-spirit, two-spirit. individuals, mm-hmm. which is an English like construct of different indigenous tribes and their own personal beliefs. But we kind of... That's like the whitewash version? Right, right. But like Two Spirits, the umbrella for so many different tribes who kind of fall into similar beliefs that there are people who exist outside of this binary. Got it. Getting into more recent history, specifically the American Civil War, Albert Kasher was assigned female at birth and lived his life as a man and was an American Civil War soldier. I didn't know. I know. In the earliest 20th century, there was a groundbreaking work of Magnus Hirschfeld, who was in Berlin, which enabled social and legal transition and in early forms of hormone therapies and physical transition. So this is like the first person who really started working on hormone therapy in the earliest 20th century. By the mid to late 20th century, there was Christine Jorgensen, who was one of the earliest and most high-profile transgender people to transition using gender reassignment surgery. I had no idea who the first person was, and yeah. it's Christine. Yay, Christine. And, quote, the Holy Trinity, Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, mm. and Miss Major uh, Greg and Gracie, who were trans women of color who were instrumental stonewall figures hell yeah which we covered last season one right we covered marcia p johnson in season one we talked about them at least right i didn't cover them i think we talked about them which you have a beautiful painting of Marsha P. Johnson. Yes we've talked about her we've talked about the the painting on the podcast yes it's yes. gorgeous um If you don't know the history of Stonewall, please, please, please go and do research. Maybe we'll cover it on a future episode of the pod. It's on the list. Oh, everything's on the list. Um, And Stonewall is for sure near the top. I'm pretty positive. (laughs) Because you can't say for sure positive and absolutely all in the same sentence. (laughs) (laughs) But the list literally goes on and on and on. So there are all these trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming, gender diverse folks throughout history, but 
for some, like we see this as a new phenomenon because it's on the rise, because people are unpacking ideas of gender, they're unpacking gender roles and gender expression and just playing with it more. Well, that and it's been oppressed for, you know, the past 500 years. Oh, or more. More. You know? Yeah. At least in, in Western culture, right? Absolutely. And for so many reasons. But, I mean, thinking of the different systems that really benefit, like, the what we see as traditional heterosexual marriage, where, like, there are so many incentives to get married as a straight couple. Um, there are tax benefits. There are homeownership benefits. Um, they really, there's been so many disadvantages to being queer outside of safety, but even for legal purposes, like it's difficult. So now that we are moving into a generation of leadership where people are able to be more open and feel safe and comfortable to be more open, it's terrifying for mm -hmm. older folks who don't understand where this is coming from right? and may see it as a fad when really I think it's just a paradigm shift that we're all experiencing. It's a necessary change. Absolutely. <clears throat> so molecular cell biologist Anne Futso-Sterling wrote a paper in 1993 called The Five Sexes, Why Male and Female Are Not Enough, which attacks a lot of the popular understanding of sex and gender based on chromosomes. So there's more than just XX and XY, and that's what her paper goes into. And she wrote, quote, if the state and legal system have an interest in maintaining a two-party sexual system, they are in defiance of nature. Sex is vast, infinitely, is a vast, infinitely malleable continuum. So this, like, society feeling of being stuck on sex chromosomes as evidence that gender diversity is binary is really outdated um and it's definitely built on like shaky foundation so science historians ian stedman and sarah richardson both ident identify that this is a popular yet reductive idea from the past richardson notes quote existing sex and gender stereotypes were projected into chromosomes by early researchers creating the misunderstanding that X and Y chromosomes control sex. In reality, there are extremely few sexual characteristics solely controlled by the presence of a Y chromosome. And just as there are plenty of sex characteristics controlled by genes found on other chromosomes, the quote sex chromosome also carries genes that determine traits that have nothing to do with sex. So it's really trying to, like, even as early as 1993, which does not feel early, earlier, but was 30 years ago. I'm planning my brother's 30th birthday party, mm -hmm. which is super weird. 1993 was 30 years ago. And there's scientific research and scientists are saying that chromosomes actually have very little to do with gender. In fact, nothing, potentially. So this work, among many other geneticists and biologists, point to a complex um, interplay of genetic and environmental factors that give rise to physical sex characteristics and psychological feelings of gender. 
So in light of all that's happening in Florida and other states as we've already been talking about, in regards to gender-affirming care, let's talk about mental health outcomes. This is a psychology podcast after all. So the question is, what is the impact for transgender and non-binary youth who do not have access to appropriate gender-affirming care? (sighs) Gender-affirming care, as defined by the World Health Organization, encompasses a range of social, psychological, behavioral, and medical interventions designed to support and affirm an individual's gender identity when it conflicts, conflicts with the gender they were assigned at birth. The interventions help trans people align various aspects of their lives, emotional, interpersonal, and biological, with their gender identity, as noted by the American Psychiatric Association. That identity can run anywhere along the continuum that includes men, women, and a combination of those, neither of those, or are fluid. So gender-affirming care is anything social, psychological, behavioral, or medical. I think it can be just as simple as like not being forced to wear like the women's t-shirt cuts. Like that shit is so fucking stupid. Yes. Like absolutely. Why? Or being able to use binders. I was just about to say that. Yeah. 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 Uh, And to feel supported socially during a social transition Mm -hmm. into um, a more fluid expression Mm -hmm. than maybe what your sex assigned at birth was. Yeah. It's it's about the respect for somebody saying, hey, I would prefer if you'd called me by this name. And use these pronouns. Yeah. And that costs zero dollars. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm meeting up with a friend later tonight and we she was telling me that her job, she um, works in the for-profit tech world. Her job provides folks with support to learn how to use pronouns so like they have volunteers who like mentor other colleagues around pronoun usage so apparently they have a lot of folks who use they them pronouns within Mm -hmm. their organization and whenever people start they may not know how to use pronouns Mm -hmm. which is like it's such a huge thing for a person such a small thing to learn how to adapt but our brains are not wired to use they, them pronouns. Hmm. Like you have to be very cognizant of who you're talking to and not just what their name is or how they present. Yeah. Um, So like they have actual folks who will sit down with you and help you practice so that when you are interacting with folks who use different pronouns than he, him, or she, her, you have the tools that you need in order to do so effectively. That's great. That's the benefit. Some people really shit on working for larger companies, but larger companies often have those resources. Absolutely. Which is huge. Like they're the ones with the LGBT plus ally organizations and, you know, uh, groups for women and groups for, you know, black, uh, you know, business owners or whatever. Like, yeah, I know someone whose job has a queer book club. Like, they have their standard book club for all employees, but then they have just a queer book club. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine. So, numerous studies have found that trans youth, especially those experiencing gender dysphoria, are significantly more likely than other youth to suffer from emotional distress. Totally Mm -hmm. makes sense. So, thinking about depression, bullying, other forms of violence, um... These youth are more likely to harm themselves or attempt suicide. 
For example, a study led by the University of Minnesota of nearly 82,000 students. Remember, this is a weird study. Yep. It is the University of Minnesota. Yep. Oh, God, so white. So, so, so fucking white. white. Uh, 82,000 students in a state found that 61% of transgender youth reported suicidal ideation, more than three times the rate among cisgender youth. Yeah. In school, gender dysphoric youth often struggle to succeed socially and academically, quote, due to, pre- due to pressure to dress in a way that's associated with their assigned sex at birth or out of fear of being harassed and teased. Um, and representation. Like, if you don't look out and see people who look like you and identify like you, it's, it's hard to not think that you're alone. Absolutely. Like, not seeing older queer or trans individuals, you start to wonder, do these people grow up? Am I the first? Am mm-hmm. I going to be part of the first wave to grow up? Or are there people who have done this before? And seeing that representation is so, so important. But accessing health services, mental health services, or just like medical services can be really difficult due to fear of stigma and lack of experienced care providers. Um, Studies have linked gender-affirming care at various levels to a decrease in depression and harmful behaviors. For example, a study from Stanford University School of Medicine in California published in July concluded that when those who begin hormone therapy in adolescence experience published a study in July concluding that those who begin hormone therapy in adolescence experience less suicidal ideation, fewer mental health disorders, and less substance abuse than those who begin therapy much later. So I think for me, in thinking about like all the bans in gender-affirming care, especially like Florida stands out to me because um, there is a bill in Florida that if passed would allow children to be removed from their families if someone even hints that their parents may be seeking gender-affirming care for them. What a fucking witch trial. I, I like, mean... What, what a witch hunt. That's, that's fucked a, up beyond So, belief. like, I, I follow several people on social media who live in Florida who are parents of trans kids or who are parents of queer kids who are, like actively looking to move out of Florida because they're afraid. Like, they're afraid for the health outcomes for their children. They're afraid for the safety of their children, for their own safety. Like, you could have a neighbor report you to DSS for or CPS or whatever the Florida equivalent is for seeking gender-affirming care for your child, and they're deeming it child abuse when all the research shows that this is actually life-saving Healthcare. This is life-saving, supportive systems that can genuinely make a positive impact for children. So I know that the experiences of folks with um, who are non-binary and trans and gender diverse or gender inconvenient, I know that those experiences are so nuanced and individual. Um, but I think just taking the small step to better understand what are these terms? What do they mean? What is gender affirming care? What are the pros and cons to, you know, puberty blockers or hormone replacement therapies? 
Um, but keeping an open mind because anything that lowers depression, lowers anxiety, lowers suicidal ideation or self-harm, um, I think is really valuable. Um, and also it's not up to us to be the judge, jury, and executioner of how um, individuals are healthy. Amen. Yep. So that's my soapbox for today is gender diversity and transgender identities and sociology and so and psychology. So well, thank you very much for covering the T in LGBT because I feel like and I think a lot of people feel like the T gets overlooked. Overlooked. Absolutely. So I think that was really important. Um, so thank you. Thank you. And I know that was a really long segment. So let's take a break and then we will come back. And when we come back, we are hearing about Harvey Milk. I cannot wait. Yay. And we're back. And we are back. Are you ready? I am so ready. I love Sean Penn. I know. <laughs> who is who is is played Harvey Milk in a movie called Milk one time, ten years ago. Yep, probably more than that. Yep. By I've now. got a funny story to tell you offline about that. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Yep. Thank you. All right. You ready? I am very ready. Okay. My body is ready. Perfect. Your womb is where it needs to be. Everything is in its appropriate place. Harvey Milk was born in the New York City suburb of Woodmere, which is near, it's in Hempstead on Long Island. I'm not sure if you know where that is. I know where it is because I had to go there on a business trip one time. Because you're so fancy. Because I'm fancy. It's the hair flip for me. Thank <laughs> That was I had to go there one time. <laughs> I'm so important. Um, his parents were William Milk. Milk is such a weird last name. I hate it. I've never, ever heard of anyone else with the last name Milk no. until Harvey. No. Sponsored by. Sponsored. He's like the OG, like, milk carton. Carton child. Lunch pale kid yeah so um his parents william milk and minerva which is badass minerva right minerva milk. carnes well then milk yeah carnation is uh evaporated milk right brand unclear oh okay. i'll take your word for it i think so i'm gonna say it's fact but they were born in lithuania and they were practicing jews Harvey grew up in a fairly religious household. In fact, Harvey's grandfather, who was a department store owner, he was like a local business owner, he helped to organize the first synagogue in the Woodmere neighborhood. Wow. Yeah, pretty cool. So trailblazers from the start. Amen, right? So I'm sure you've seen photos of Harvey Milk. You know, he's so cute, right? Just, God, he's so cute. Adorable. Absolutely. And his smile. Yeah. Adorable. Um... He was unfortunately teased as a child for his predominant ears and his facial features. But Harvey leaned into this and tended to, you know, combat the teasing with humor and began to have a reputation for a class clown, which kind of checks out. It kind of follows I him. I can see that. Yeah. 
Harvey graduated high school in 1947 and went on to the New York State College of Teachers in Albany, which now I think is called the State University of New York at Albany. Right. There's a bunch of those. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the North Carolina system. Yeah. It's just a ton. Yeah. So he majored in mathematics, which I thought was really interesting. I wouldn't have pegged him for that. For some reason, that checks out for me. Really? Yeah. Figuring out problems, you know. Yeah. Seeing how all things come together. Math is the, you know. I see him more as like a theater kid as opposed (laughs) to like like a studious gentleman. That's fair. You know? Also fair. But while he was in school, he wrote for the college newspaper, and some say that this is where his interest in politics kind of started. After college, he joined the Navy during the Korean War, and he was a diving officer for the USS Kitawak? 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 Kitawak. Kitawak. Which was a submarine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, he transferred over to Naval Station Sandy in San Diego, California, where he served as a diving instructor. During this time in the Navy, Harmy came out as a gay man. And That's bold. I know. I was going to say in my That's notes, I say, super bold. Can we pause for a moment to marinate on the bravery of this man in the 1950s? The 1950s coming Hell, out yeah. in the military yes. as a gay man. Hats off to you, Shit. Harvey. So, unfortunately, he was forced to resign from the Navy and was discharged as, quote, other than honorable. So, not quite dishonorable. Not dishonorable. Gray area. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not a professional on, like, the discharge, uh, you know. We would have to phone a friend on that one. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, But it was because of his sexual orientation. Can we pause for a moment to, to remember that there was like an entire seasonal arc of the L word based on whether Tanya was gay and going to be kicked out of the military. Was it Tanya or was it Tasha? Tasha, shit, whatever. I had almost completely forgotten that. I was actually thinking there's a queer... Wait, who's Tanya? Did I make Tanya was Dana's girlfriend who was also her like tennis coach. the, the co- chef. The chef was the redhead. Her name, fuck. What's her name? Doesn't matter. Doesn't Tanya matter. Was the co- oh, Tanya was the coach who Tanya she almost married in season one coach. or season yeah. two. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it, got it, got it. Anyways, Tasha was the one who was in the military. Tasha was cute, so cute. Oh my god, so cute. But no, I was thinking of there's the movie by, oh gosh, I don't even remember the queer broadcast, like the queer movie production company that did all of the queer movies and like the 90s and early 2000s called marine that was about a marine who was dishonorably discharged for being gay mm-hmm. and was like training a young girl who was also gay mm. to help her get into the marines weird yep well that was so that's G- my only reference well that it was also a point in gi jane remember was that it? she almost got like kicked out of the marine program because demi? she was seen uh-huh with demi yeah Huh. Yeah. It was a real part of our history. So I think, you know, it sounds like tacky and shit. It's like, ew, like, that's weird. But, like, it but was a real such, thing. And it's such a recent part of our history. Oh, my God. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was only repealed. I don't want to get this one wrong. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was 
effective in 1993, December of 1993, and was in effect until September of 2011. Like, that is just over 10 years ago. That's insane. That's crazy. Like, that's after, that's when you and I were in college. Yeah. Sure was. (laughs) Fuck. Fuck. So, super recent. Hmm. So, back to Harvey. So, you know, once he was kicked out, once he was other than honorably discharged, um, it was a big time of reflection for him. And he began teaching at George W. Hewlett High School in Long Island, New York, and began thinking of settling down and starting to date. Aww. In 1956, he met his first love, Joe Campbell, at a popular gay bar in Queens. Harvey started to pursue Campbell, and they moved in together. It is said that Harvey wrote him romantic notes, love letters, and poems, and together they moved to Dallas, Texas. Why the fuck (laughs) would you move from New York to Dallas fucking Texas? I mean, I know we're rebranding Texas and all that, Uh but... Well, to be fair, they realized that Texas was Texas. And they move back to New York. Okay, cool. But, like, a long-distance move does indicate a huge level of commitment. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Across country. Not doing that for just for anybody. But, unfortunately, after six years together, the couple separated for unknown reasons. And this is a fact. This note. This is noted as Harvey's longest relationship. Six years. Yes. Six years. And essentially his very first relationship. At one point, he planned to move to Miami to marry a lesbian friend of his so that they could both like be each other's beards, basically. For sure. But instead, he decided to stay single in New York and discreetly pursue relationships of his own. Next, he entered the phase of dating somebody significant other significant younger like 10 years younger than him at a time when he was like too young like illegal oh not great not great interestingly it's reported that harvey was concerned about his partner's involvement with a human rights group in the city which like doesn't like from what we know about harvey milk as um a political you know person sure it's interesting that he was insecure about that in fact they broke up after his partner was arrested during a protest for indecent exposure let me tell you more please do at that time men's swimsuits were required to extend from above the navel to below the thigh so anything less than that could get you an indecent exposure so i don't know where that law came from i don't want to say that like historically lgbt folks are dressed more scantily clad but historically lgbt folks are dressed a little bit more (laughs) scantily clad a little bit more risque you know well i think lgbtq folks are more likely to play with gender and play with clothing and what feels good right yeah like you know fuck the system right and Fuck gender norms around clothing. Like, clothing is clothing. Yeah. Wear what makes you feel comfortable and confident. Amen. His next relationship was with a man named Jack McKinley, who actually recruited him to work on Republican Barry Godwater's presidential campaign. It's a no for me. (laughs) 
Um, the relationship was problematic. Jack was only 16 years old when they first began their romantic relationship. Jack was prone to depression mm-hmm. and often threatened to harm himself during arguments or if he felt that Harvey wasn't showing enough attention to him. And this is why mental health is so important, especially in the queer community. Mm -hmm. Mental health supports are vital. So Harvey actually took Jack to the hospital to visit Joe Campbell, his previous boyfriend, who was recovering from a suicide attempt (gasps) to try to, like, show him, like, hey. It gets better. Or, like, this is the worst it could get. I don't even know how you phrase that. But he he took... Oh, oh, oh. I was thinking, like, he took this guy to the hospital to show the guy in the hospital that, like, hey... No, no, no. No, no, no. To show his current boyfriend, you know, that... Ooh. Yeah. That's not great. Yeah. So, uh, I guess he was trying to knock some sense into him but that's obviously not how mental health works but it does it does show the severity of the uh the issue oh absolutely with with queer folks during this time right which is not uh just uh exclusive to this time period obviously you kind of touched on that as far as it being kind of everywhere every everything everywhere all at once yeah so, ultimately, like, we're seeing some patterns of unhealthy relationships during his this phase of his life, uh, which, unfortunately, is not the last time that we'll see that for Harvey. Uh, but he and Jack moved to San Francisco. There we go. I and knew then, we get there. And then back to New York. Ah, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and they finally broke up after Jack's Broadway success bl- blew up. This is when Harvey moves to San Francisco with a gentleman named Scott Smith. John Smith. Which is his new boo thing. Mm. So him and Scott Smith decide to open a camera store on Castro Street with their last $1,000. That sounds like a great idea. I think so, too. They're like, you know what's never going to go out of style? Cameras. Cameras. You know what I haven't bought in about 15 (laughs) years? Cameras. Cameras. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um. So the climate in San Francisco at the time was pretty terrible for LGBT for the LGBT community uh, during the '60s and pretty much also any other time period ever, uh, including today. Right. But uh, gay bars and queer spaces were popping up, and these were safe havens for, for queer folks. However, of course, um, the LGBTQ plus community were often targeted by police. They would often raid gay bars uh, and they would, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we've all seen the footage where they parade the folks out of the, uh, of the gay bars uh, very publicly mm-hmm. as, a, as a form of like shame and, and outing folks, uh, you know, and, and there was a lot of activity politically uh, at that time and there was a lot of raids on those queer spaces. Did you ever go back and watch A League of Their Own? The new TV show? No. You still have to do that. I know. Rosie O'Donnell runs a queer bar in the 1940s or 50s. 40s, I think. Um, and it gets raided. So. Oh, God. Yeah. 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 Um, in the 1960s, human rights groups were created, such as the Society for Individual Rights. 
uh, which is abbreviated as SIR, and their aim were, was to work against the police uh, persecution of gay bars in San Francisco. The mayor of San Francisco directed the police to target the parks where gay men were going to engage in sex acts. Right. Um, in 1970, nearly 90 people were arrested for having sex in public uh, in the parks at night. Um, and part of the reason that Mayor Elioto decided to target the parks was because it would appeal to his Catholic supporters at the time. So he could basically do a campaign saying, hey, we're going to crack down on, you know, these people who are doing these lewd oh, absolutely. acts and, you know, protecting our families. And ch- I mean, it's the same trope that, that people are using today. Absolutely. So remember, in 1970, there were 90 people arrested. Okay. Okay. In 1971, 2,800 <gasps> gay men were arrested. What? For public sex in San Francisco. Fuck. By comparison, New York City reported only 63 arrests the same year. In New York City, which is like where everybody has sex in public. (laughs) Everybody's fucking. All the time. All the time. So, obviously, there's, there's, uh, there's a focus and there's a lot of dollars going towards, uh, capturing these specific quote unquote crimes. For sure. You know, having sex in public probably a crime but there was nowhere else for these people to go and they were exclusively targeting gay people yeah yeah it, it reminds me of the quote whatever you're looking for you will find it mm. and especially thinking about policing and how yeah. so many communities are over policed and they are shocked when there's high crime rates but it's because you're looking for it it's because you are you know so heavily policing those areas what are you expecting other than to find folks who are doing the very thing that you're policing well it's interesting because i have the experience where there's there's this one cop on my way to work every day on the highway just waiting for people to speed and i'm like don't you have anything better to do no like what are our tax dollars doing so and this is a tangent But my thought is, if speeding is really your concern, like if you are genuinely that worried about speeding, there are like technology, like bots that you can put on the side of the road that will take a picture of your license plate if you are speeding. Yeah. If you have actual money, though. Right. And if you have actual people out there who are patrolling for speeding, you're looking for something more than speeding. True. So. Yes. And. Yes, and there's a book called Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell that really does a lot of investigative work around what police are looking for um, and how they determine who to pull over. And he very closely examines um, the death of Sandra Bland, who was pulled mm-hmm. over for not turning to her, for failing to use her turn signal mm-hmm. and later died in prison. Yeah. Um, But it's all about, like, what were the cops looking for when they pulled her over? Because no one gets pulled over for failing to use a turn signal. Other than Sandra Bland. So, that's super big tangent. Back to people being arrested for public sex. So When it was happening all over the country, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, San Francisco, which is, like, very up-and-coming gay area, 
uh, obviously people were feeling uncomfortable because so many people were being thrown out of the military at that time that sure. a lot of people were staying in San Francisco and there was right. a larger gay population. But, and it's still, like, to yeah. this day, one of the gayest cities in the country. Thanks to Harvey Milk. Right. we will get to. But back to the, you know, arrests. Any arrest for, like, a moral charge like this would require those folks to register as a sex offender. So not only is it, you know... Not only are you now charged with it, but now it's going on your record as you being a sex offender. Yeah, yeah. So, but some hope was around the corner, though. Quote... In 1971, SIR members Jim Foster, Rick Stokes, and advocate publisher David Goodstein formed the Alice B. Tolks Memorial Democratic Club, known simply as Alice. Alice befriended liberal politicians to persuade them to sponsor bills, proving successful in 1972 when Del Martin and Phyllis Leon obtained majority votes to support an ordinance outlawing employment discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Jim Foster shot to national prominence by being the first openly gay man to address a political convention. His speech in the 1972 Democratic National Convention ensured that his voice, according to San Francisco politicians, was the one to be heard when they wanted to when they wanted the opinions and especially the votes of the gay community. Mm. End quote. So there's people who were kind of paving the way. There are people who were poking their nose in politics. There are organizations that are being founded uh, to support the movement. Right. Um, You know, nobody's quite been able to break through so far, though. Uh, And this would really inspire Harvey Milk. Quote, Milk became more interested in politics and civil matters when he was faced with civic problems and and policies that he disliked. Well, the personal is political. True. Um, But I'm thinking, like, he he had this background in mathematics. um, And then... He opened a camera store. Sure did. And now he, like, you mentioned an interest in politics before that, but so we go from mathematics to a camera store to politics. To business. Well, I think maybe just to business. Business. Okay. Cool. Yep. You know. And when you're a business owner in a local community, you have a lot of of interest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So one day in 1973, a state bureaucrat entered Milk Shop Castro Camera and informed him that he owed $100 as a deposit against state sales tax. I don't know how they did it back then. Huh. <laughs> They're like, yo, $100 for sales tax. Give us $100. Milk's like, absolutely not. So, good for him. I mean, that feels like a scam, but we also live in the generation where everything could be a scam. True. Milk became angry and he traded shouts at the man about the rights of business owners. After he complained for weeks at state offices, the deposit was reduced th- to $30. So I think that was maybe his first taste of, like, if you fight hard enough, you can make change. Mm-hmm. Like, if you complain enough, you know, nobody really cares. I think a lot of these numbers are arbitrary. So, you know, does the government need your $100 for sales tax? First state sales tax i don't know probably there may be building a road with it but they're they're (laughs) they're willing to take the 30 dollars right so i think that was an experience for him 
Milk fumed about government priorities when a teacher came to his store to borrow a projector because the equipment in the schools did not function, which I think is a tale as old as time. <laughs> Friends True as it can be. <laughs> Friends also remembered around the same time having to restrain him from kicking the television when Attorney General John N. Mitchell gave consistent, I don't recall, replies during the Watergate hearings. Milk decided that the time had come to run for city supervisor. He said later, quote, I finally reached the point where I knew I had to become involved or shut up. End Ooh. Quote. Okay. During the beginning of his career, his inexperience showed... He believed that his message would be enough, and he focused less on funding, local support, and staffing his campaigns. He began promoting um, other individuals, like kind of like you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, right, right, uh, to build some professional relationships within the community. Um, he supported the reorganization of elections from uh, citywide ballots to district ballots. So the attention here was to reduce the influence of money and give each neighborhood more control over their representation. We so this is that. local office. Okay. It's for supervisor. Um, he ran on a culturally liberal platform opposing government interference in private sexual matters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and favoring the legalization of marijuana. Hey, hey. During the regional 1973 election for local city government, he won some folks over with his fiery and flamboyant speeches. He earned about 17,000 votes, sweeping the Castro district, and he came in 10th place out of 32. Okay. Had the election been reorganized to allow districts to elect their own supervisors, he would have won. Quote, from early in his political career, Milk displayed an affinity for building coalitions. The Teamsters Union. Wait, what? Yes, girl. What a great name. I know. So basically, they were a union in right. the area. And they were Teamsters. And they were Teamsters. And they were us. Um, they wanted to strike against beer contributors, Coors in particular, um, who refused to sign the union contract. An organizer asked Milk for assistance with the gay bars in, in the Castro area. And in return, Milk asked the union to hire more gay drivers. Sounds like a good... Sounds like a trade. Yeah. A few days later, Milk canvassed the gay bars in and surrounding the Castro district, urging them to refuse to sell the beer. With the help of a coalition of Arab and Chinese grocers, the Teamsters had also recruited those those guys uh the boycott was successful milk found a strong political ally and organized labor and it was around the time that he began to style himself quote the mayor of castro street as castro street um as the castro street presence grew so did milk's reputation Tim O. Hergen, Horgan, remarked, quote, Harvey spent most of his life looking for a stage. On the Castro Street, he finally found it. He decided to run again in 1975 for supervisor of San Francisco, and this time he vowed to take it seriously. He cut his long hair. What? He stopped smoking pot. And he swore to himself that he would never visit a bathhouse again. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, his platform was backed by unions, firefighters, and construction workers. His storefront, his storefront, Castro Cameras, became the center of activity in the neighborhood. Harvey came in seventh, again, at the time. Quote, Milk's role as a representative of San Francisco's gay community expanded during this period. On September 22nd, 1975, President Gerald Ford, while visiting San Francisco, walked from his hotel to his car. In the crowd, Sarah Jane Moore raised a gun to shoot him. <gasps> a former Marine who'd been walking by randomly grabbed her arm as the gun discharged towards the pavement. The bystander was Oliver Bill Sipple, who had left Milk's ex-lover, Joe Campbell, years before, prompting Campbell's suicide attempt. What? I know. The national spotlight was on him immediately. On psychiatric disability leave from the military, Sipple refused to call himself a hero and did not want his sexuality disclosed. Of course, because it's what year? 1970s, 80s? 75. 75. Milk, however took advantage of the opportunity to illustrate his cause that public perception of gay people would be improved if they came out of the closet. He told a friend, quote, it's too good an opportunity. For once we can show that the gays do heroic things, not just all the caca about molesting children and having and hanging out in bathrooms. <laughs> yeah, uh, end quote. That was Hate a that. quote from Milk. Uh, so Milk contacted a newspaper. Several days later, Herb Kane, a columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle, exposed Sipple as gay and as a friend of Milk's. So things we don't need to do is out people. Correct. Write that down. Like step one, don't out anyone I ever. Mean, period. Oh yeah, and this was this was very political. This was right. like very calculated, right? Um, the announcement was picked up by National Newspaper, and Milk's name was included in many of the stories. Time magazine named Milk as a leader in San Francisco's gay community. Sipple was besieged by reporters, as was his family. His mother, who was a staunch Baptist in Detroit, now refused to speak to him. Oh, my gosh. That's Although, so hard. I know. Although he had been involved with the gay community for years, even participating in gay pride prevent events, Sipple sued the Chronicle for invasion of privacy. Don't blame him. No, me either. President Ford sent Sipple a note of thanks for saving his life. Milk said that Sipple's sexual, sexual orientation was the reason he received only a note rather than an invitation to the White House. Which checks out if you save yeah. the president's life you get a note are you kidding i mean it's 1975 what does that mean oh just the yeah like H homophobia right exactly yeah <laughs> that part yeah uh the newly appointed mayor george muscone appointed harvey to the board of permit appeals in 1976 making him the first openly gay city commissioner in the u.s um, I want to spend the last piece of this week's section talking about uh, representation. Ooh, mm -hmm. okay. So we all know why it's important, but I think that we often get caught up in the words of like, I think we often like circulate 
kind of like what you were saying, diversity, inclusion, representation, and we say them so much that we sort of lump them together and, and they kind of lose their oomph. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so this is a snippet from Harvey Milk that I think speaks to that really well. Quote, somewhere, quote, somewhere in Des Moines or San Antonio, there's a young gay person who all of a sudden realizes that she or he is gay. Knows that if the parents find out, they'll be tossed out of the, out of the house. The classmates will taunt the child and the Anita Byrons and the John Briggs are going to do their bit on TV. I'll get into them next week. Okay. And the child has several options. Staying in the closet, suicide. And then one day the child might open a paper and it says, homosexual elected in San Francisco. And there are two new options. An option is to go to California and stay in San Francisco and fight. Two days after I was elected, I got a phone call and the voice was quite young. It was from Antalula, Pennsylvania, and the person said, thanks, and you've got to elect gay people so that young gay children and the thousands upon thousands like that child know that there's hope for a better world. There's hope for a better tomorrow. Without hope, not only gays, but those blacks and Asians and disabled and seniors, the us's, the us's without hope, the us's, the us's. I know that you cannot live on hope alone, but without it, life is not worth living. End quote. Wow. Isn't that good? Oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to go back and read that myself. Yeah. That's a beautiful quote. LGBTQ plus youth are more than four times likely, um, as likely to attempt suicide than their peers. The Trevor Noah Project uh, estimates that more than 1.8 million LGBTQ plus youth seriously consider suicide each year in the U.S. And at least one attempts suicide every 45 seconds. Um, I want to conclude my notes this week with two Harvey Milk quotes. Quote, how can people change their minds about us if they don't know who we are? And then I personally will never forget that people are more important than buildings. I love that one. I love all three of the last quotes that you shared. Those are all so powerful and poignant and just well suited to being in the middle of Pride Month. Yeah. I think, um, so I'm doing a two-parter. I don't think I said that. Um, But I think the first part of Harvey's career was just about getting seen Mm -hmm. um, and trying to make those initial steps about being heard and... Um, trying to get that equal playing field. And so I thought that including some information about representation was important and kind of wanting to highlight that. Absolutely. That is Harvey Milk Part Part 1. I'm so glad that there's a part two. I also love and hate all of the components of this because, unfortunately, I think so many of us know how Harvey's story ends. Mm-hmm. Um, so excited to stay tuned for that next week and to learn more. Um, but you're so right. Like the windows into other people's lives are important when it comes to being a queer youth and just seeing what opportunities there are in this world. So. I think that's our link up for this week. That's yeah. our that's our intersection is it's important for young queer folks, whether you're gay or trans, non-binary, um, 
any assortment of any of the letters. Any of the alphabet mafia. <laughs> any of the alphabet mob, mafia, any of the community. Um, it's important to see elders and to know that your story continues. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's powerful and important. I love it. Yeah. Happy Pride, everybody. We see you. We love you. We are you. <laughs> and we're here for you. And uh, we're so glad that you're here with us. And thank you for supporting us. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanodd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.